So Putin spent a record-breaking more than two hours outlining his State of the Union. I promise my deconstruction of it will be briefer. Hello, I'm Mark Galliotti, and welcome to my view of Russia in Moscow shadows. This podcast of varying length, frequency and format, yet always reassuringly low production values, is supported by generous and perspicacious patrons like you, and also by the crisis exercise software company Conductor. On the last day of February, Putin gave his constitutionally mandated address to the Federal Assembly, the higher chamber of the Russian legislature. And as I discovered to my cost, as I sat down to watch it, it was destined to be the longest ever, more than than two hours. Now, I've already given a sort of quick snap response on on video. If you haven't seen it, I'll leave a link in the programme notes. But having actually been able to think about it a bit more and pour over the full transcript with all, all the delights that, that involved, I thought it was actually well worth digging into it to some detail. Now, look, I absolutely admit this will be something of a nerd fest, a shameless smorgasbord of wonkery. So, you know, be warned. And if you end up skimming this one, look, I, I won't hold it too much against you. But the point is, I, I do think there are some interesting things. So what I'm going to do is in the first half, run through the text. I'm t- not every bit of it. There are whole sections that I'm going to pretty much ignore. But actually pulling out certain themes and, and, and language that he uses and points that he makes. And then in the second half, think more thematically about the three key takeaways worth having. So anyway, it it starts, he says, the primary purpose of every address to the Federal Assembly is to offer a forward-looking perspective. Today, we will discuss, I mean, discuss, it means the audience sits and listens, not only our short-term plans, but also our strategic objectives and matters which I believe are instrumental in ensuring steady, long-term development for our country. And, you know, there is an irony here, actually, because if one took his words at face value, if one believed what he says his priorities are, if one accepted that the money would be found for all of these various commitments, although I would say there's there's a lack of a, a clear central developmental theme, nonetheless, he goes on to actually outline a whole load of things which really would be genuinely useful to the long-term development of our country. Well, our country, obviously, Russia. And in that context, I think what's interesting is the degree to which we have to kind of read between the lines about what is he just promising because he thinks the listeners want to hear that? What is he promising because he's aware that Russia needs it and hopes to achieve something? And what is he actually genuinely laying out as a programmatic vision? And it's it's not one and the same. But anyway, you know, he has to start by talking about the war. But the interesting thing is actually how little, I mean, it's, it's maybe 15 minutes of, of, of the overall total, is actually about the war. And often it's not so much about the war itself, 
the hard-fought battles in Ukraine so much as what he sees as the wider political context and particularly this, this sort of general existential struggle with a, an unpleasant West. But in this respect, actually, this section is at once pugnacious and perfunctory. It comes with all the various threats that, that one would expect towards the West, but at the same time, he kind of runs through it as quickly as possible and often as generically as possible, precisely because that is not what he wants to dwell on. And I'll come on to that afterwards. So he talks about how this year marks the 10th anniversary of the legendary Russian Spring. Now that's interesting. Russian Spring was the name that was applied to the early beginnings of the Donbass War. But in many ways, it was precisely that early stage, which, and I appreciate this is a controversial issue, which wasn't really something that one could d describe as a Russian invasion of Ukraine. It was across the Donbass region, the, 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 Russia, the largely Russian-speaking parts of Ukraine, there were a series of local risings, which in many or most cases were assisted and facilitated by a variety of, of Russian elements, but not clearly some kind of coordinated Kremlin strategy. The Kremlin was permissive rather than directive. It allowed various ultranationalists, mercenaries, freebooters and the like to get involved. But in a way, sat back to see what happened. It was only after this, this revolution had in some way, well, revolution in quote marks, I hope you appreciate, had petered out and that it looked as if the reconsolidated forces of Kiev, largely expressed by a whole series of volunteer militias, was about to snuff out this Russian spring, that Putin decided really, I think, seduced by a sunk cost fallacy, that sense of can't really abandon something that has already emerged to actually deploy troops. And that's when really we, we, we can talk about this as being a, a proxy invasion of, of Ukraine. But the interesting thing is he's now claiming credit for something that at best he was just willing to happen. And we see this in, in other factors. I mean, he, he's also using the term Novorossiya, New Russia, for the Donbass areas. The interesting thing is the degree to which actually, back in 2014 at least, and indeed 2015, the Kremlin really didn't want to see this, this, this term revived. So 2014's uncertainties have now become some kind of manifest destiny because where these people expressed, as he puts it, their love for the motherland, which they carried through generations, naturally makes one proud. This certainly inspires us and strengthens our confidence that we will overcome anything that we will be able to do anything together. And again, this is going to be a, th a theme of this section, is he's basically trying to tell the Russian people that they support this war. He goes on to say, Our citizens are playing the decisive role in this righteous struggle, their unity and devotion to our country and our shared responsibility for its future. And they clearly and unequivocally demonstrated these qualities at the very beginning of the special military operation, when it was supported by the absolute majority of Russians. And despite the hardest trials and bitter losses, people have remained adamant in their choice and are reaffirming it by trying to do as much as possible for their country and for the common good. Again, I think that's quite, it's quite interesting in that, you know, he, he says an absolute majority supported at the very beginning. Well, we can question that, but nonetheless, fair enough. But then he sort of slightly kind of blurs it when he says, oh, and they are still committed, you know. 
And I think, again, this is often the way that, that Kremlin propaganda works. It's trying to sort of suggest if you are not in support of whether it's Putin's re-election or the invasion or whatever else, you are the freak. You are the one who is somehow out of step with everyone else. And you probably better keep quiet about it because, you know, it's, it's not good to, to, to be challenging the collective. So, I mean, in this respect, you know, it, it does show, I think, I, maybe I'm, I'm reading too much into it, you know, a slight awareness of the, the fragility of the level of support. But the point is this. It's not so much about Ukraine, really. It's about the bigger picture. It's about, as he goes on later, the so-called West, with its colonial practices and penchant for inciting ethnic conflicts around the world, not only seeks to impede our progress, but also envisions a Russia that is a dependent, declining and dying space where they can do as they please. See, this is absolutely crucial. War has now become a central organising principle of late Putinism. It is the excuse for everything that happens. It is the reason why there cannot be any kind of meaningful, not just opposition, but even scope for rival perspectives. Putin needs war, but not necessarily a shooting war. I think this is a, this is a mistake that is sometimes made, is assuming that precisely because wartime conditions have a certain utility in supporting and justifying totalitarianism, that therefore Putin cannot afford to end the shooting war in Ukraine. He can do so and he can still have his war. He can have his war and eat it. In other words, you know, he can still be locked in this existential, political, economic, cultural, even legal struggle with the West, even without actually needing to have the cost of the war. And I would suggest that that actually would be his ideal scenario. If he can impose some kind of deal on Ukraine, which he can spin as a genuine triumph, which would presumably be holding on to occupied territories, barring Ukraine from NATO membership, perhaps some sort of strong limitations on Ukraine's military capabilities, but also its, its, its kind of political freedom and, and, and sovereignty. He could have that release the Russians from their terror of being mobilized for this bloody war and yet continue to maintain a wartime state because of the, the, the nasty West, sorry, the, the nasty so-called West and its continued pressure. So in many ways, I, I really think that was one of the, the, the passages that really we, we should remember, that they envision a, a Russia that is a dependent, declining and dying space. It, that is the point. It's the West. Ukraine is just the battlefield. Ukraine is just the instrument. But anyway, those, those nasty Westerners, they're not going to be able to do that because they have run up against the firm resolve and determination of our multi-ethnic people. And he talks about our soldiers and officers, Christians and Muslims, Buddhists and followers of Judaism, people representing different ethnicities, cultures and regions. Again, interesting, this is new language. Obviously, this is a multi-ethnic state. This is not just simply a Russian Orthodox Christian one. But nonetheless, I think we are beginning to see the question of ethnicity become an increasingly sharp political issue. And that will feed into the demographic question, which I'll come on to later. Because precisely the nature of the war, the war is disproportionately being fought by non-ethnic Russians. 
And to that end, the, the Kremlin is having to think much more carefully about how it appeals to them, how it addresses them, and how it kind of links them together into this sort of notion of a grand shared civilizational struggle. And it's a bit difficult sometimes when so much of your propaganda rests upon the real and supposed triumphs of the Russian people through history, when actually so many of those triumphs involve you know, conquering these other people. You know, the, the conquest of Kazan, a great victory. Well, yes, if you're an ethnic Russian, not so much if you're a Tatar. So again, I think we're beginning to see the Kremlin trying to evolve a new line as to how it, it recognises the multi-ethnicity of, of Russia and the Russian state building project and tries to find ways of bringing these other collectives together. So he goes on, he obviously says that, you know, we're not the ones who started the war in the Donbass. But as I have already said many times, we will do everything to put an end to it. Eradicate Nazism and fulfill all the objectives of the special military operation, as well as defend sovereignty and ensure that our people are safe. Now, again, it, I thought it was worth dwelling on, on that particular phrasing. So they want to put an end to the war in the Donbass. And it's interesting that he focuses on Donbass, not Ukraine, which again suggests potentially preparing the ground for some kind of future deal which really focuses on the Donbass. But do everything to put an end to it. Well, fair enough. Eradicate Nazism, whatever that means, and fulfill all the objectives of the special military operations. In other words, our objective is to fulfill our objectives, as well as defend sovereignty and ensure that our people are safe. Francis Emmanuel Macron recently, and in my opinion rather foolishly, talked about the great values of strategic ambiguity in trying to deter Russia. To be honest, I think strategic ambiguity has manifestly failed, not least because it was actually central to the attempts to prevent Putin from invading Ukraine in the first place. There was strategic ambiguity in the American-led efforts to say, look, we know you're going to invade, but trust us, terrible things will happen if you do. But given that we had made similar threats in the past and very little had come as them, no wonder Putin really didn't take that kind of strategic ambiguity seriously. My view all along was actually if we were going to try and deter Putin, we needed to provide pretty much, I mean, even if not publicly, but, you know, a shopping list of very, very specific measures that would be the minimum that he could expect if he invaded. In other words, what we needed was a strategic lack of ambiguity. But anyway, so Macron talks about the value of strategic ambiguity now. The interesting thing is the degree to which actually Putin practices it against the West. I mean, this line about what the war is about it means everything and nothing. It can be spun to mean anything. I mean, eradicating Nazism. One could say eradicating Nazism requires control over the entire of t entirety of Ukraine and some kind of massive purge and re-education. One could just as easily say that, well, Nazism just really manifests itself in the attempts to victimise the, the poor, downtrodden Russian speakers of the Donbass. And that just simply by protecting them we have, in effect, defanged Nazism and achieved that. The point is, he's, he's creating a series of criteria which are sufficiently woolly that they can mean whatever he, in due course, wants them to mean. So that doesn't mean to say he's, sur he's surrendered his maximalist gains, ideals, of what he would like to get from this war. But it means he's not locking himself into a position in which he, can, he cannot accept anything less. What else do we have in this particular section? Well, the usual threats, the, you know, his uh, 
necessary genuflection to Russian's missile power. He says the strategic nuclear forces are on full combat alert and the ability to use them is assured. Again, his usual thing of turning to making sure that there's a a nuclear threat which he knows is going to be picked up by the Western media. I mean, this is one of the problems. We are, I wouldn't say our, our own worst enemy, but certainly we, we, we don't help by the fact that we find a nice toothsome line like this and that becomes the headline. Now, nothing, this doesn't say anything that hasn't been said before. And Putin's purpose in, in using, shall we say, deploying nuclear rhetoric, if not nuclear weapons, is exactly to scare us to try and get some of us to say, oh my gosh, this could spin out of control. Let's reach some kind of a deal. Let's put pressure on, on Kiev. But nonetheless, there, there he is. He throws it out and many Western media outlets dutifully picked it up. And then, you know, just, just to sort of support that, he goes through the usual little sort of name check of his various sort of Wunderwaffe, which he raised in his 2018 uh, address, the Kinjal missile, Zircon missile, the avant-garde ballistic missile, the Perezvet laser complex, the Burevesnik nuclear-powered cruise missile, the Poseidon nuclear unmanned underwater vehicle. I mean, you know, Avengers assemble. You know, this, this particular roll call of weapons, again, it, it, it's there just to make it sound as if the Russians have these sort of phenomenal capabilities that outstrip the West. I mean, we saw, for example, that the Kinjal missile which is meant to be impossible to intercept, well, multiple have been times that they've been shot down over Ukraine. But it also, I think, undermines us, underlines to us, firstly, that, that Putin is obsessed with, with teeth rather than tail. He thinks it's all about the weapons rather than the, the training and the logistics and everything that backs them up. But also exactly that, that the purpose of Russia's strategic arsenal is, in theory, the final defence of the homeland, but in practice at the moment, it is to try and scare us. And, well, who does that mean? Well, first and foremost, that means the West. And that means America. He talks about the current US administration's professed interest in discussing strategic stability with us is merely demagoguery. They simply want to show to their citizens and to the world, especially in the lead up to the presidential election, that they continue to rule the world and that they would talk with the Russians only when it will benefit them, and there's nothing to talk about. They will try to inflict defeat on us. Business as usual, as they say. Well, first of all, what's interesting here, I mean, apart from just the kind of the wow, 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 America is mean to us, is, of course, that this is the only reference to any election. You would not, reading the speech, believe that in a couple of weeks' time there are going to be presidential elections in, in Russia. So the only election that is mentioned is, is the American one. And again, it, it's because America is essentially on the offensive. As he, puts, as he also puts it, the Western attempts to, to draw us into an arms race, thereby exhausting us, mirroring the strategy that they successfully employed with the Soviet Union in the 1980s. Let me remind you that in 1981 to 88, the Soviet Union's military spending amounted to 13% of GDP. Well, except for the few minor points. First of all, actually, this is exactly what Putin himself is locking Russia into. Fine, so 13% of GDP was spent by the Soviets. At the moment, it's something like 9 to 10% of GDP in Russia. So it's not that, that far off. But more to the point, look... When it comes down to it, 
it's actually very hard to impose an arms race on another country unless you absolutely have a, an intention to invade. And frankly, with, with nuclear weapons, these countries are pretty much immune. They voluntarily submit themselves to it, whether it's Putin with his decision to not only try and outmatch the West, but also invade Ukraine, or whether it's a Soviet Union with that sense that it had to, to keep up with everything from Ronald Reagan's Star Wars initiative onwards. You know, all of these are self-inflicted wounds. So I think, again, it's quite ironic and, as ever with Putin, lacking in self-awareness that he makes it seem as if actually this is something that, that can be done to Russia rather than anything else. Anyway, there, there, there's a bit more similar rhetoric. I'm, I'm not going to go through it bit by bit, but as I say, it, it really is you know, a necessary but not crucial element of, of his speech. And he, he concludes that section, really, by saying that a new, equal and indivisible security framework must be created in Eurasia in the foreseeable future. We're ready for a substantive discussion on the subject with all countries and associations that may be interested in it. At the same time, I would like to reiterate, I think this is important for everyone, that no enduring international order is possible without a strong and sovereign Russia. So again, we have here the, the carrot of potential talks. If you're nice to us, we, 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 we may well talk about security frameworks and such like and arms control and, and all the rest, but you have to be making concessions. And more importantly, this notion of his, you know, what does Putin think being a great power involves? It's a very 19th century notion. It's a point I've hammered away at the past. And one of the key elements of that is precisely that a great power is, has to be involved, has to be given a voice, and a voice means a veto, on any key global issues. And if you try to resolve any key global issues without the great power being present, then frankly, the great power will ensure that it doesn't work. So this is essentially what he's saying. He's, he's laying down his marker once again, saying that essentially Russia has to be involved in any kind of international order. And it's a strong and sovereign Russia. In other words, Russia will make its own decisions and the international order has to adapt to that. It is completely out of keeping with Russia's actual capabilities. Certainly, its ability to actually muster allies and, and support. But again, it really does suggest the degree to which actually Putin is still not learning any lessons. He's maybe be learning some tactical lessons about, you know, as a result of what's happening in the war and his conflict with the West. But in, in the grand scheme of things, this is still the same Putin. No sense that he has yet, if ever he will, reach that kind of understanding that Russia is no longer what he thinks of it. And he, he moves on, he, he pivots to a, uh, an assertion essentially that history is on Russia's side, largely because of its allies. And there's a whole bunch of, of, of facts and figures which are carefully curated to show how the G7 countries, shorthand for the, the West, the so-called West, are declining compared to the BRICS countries, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, with, with new, new members joining. Of course, he flatters Russia by that comparison, in the sense of actually the rise of the BRICS is not so much about the R as about other me members of this alliance. But nonetheless, this is the point. There's a lot of dull data presented to more or less suggest that, well, anyway, come on, Russians, 
believe that things are going to work out for us. But having done that, he then actually largely abandons international affairs and he focuses on the, the main bulk of the speech, which I should stress I'm also going to approach in least detail simply because it is just so full of different kind of pledges and so forth. And it starts with a, a great ode to the value of the family and its purpose to produce children. Because we can see what is taking place in some countries where moral standards and the family are being deliberately destroyed and entire nations are pushed to extinction and decadence. We have chosen life. Well, perhaps tell that to the Ukrainians. Russia has been and remains a stronghold of the traditional values on which human civilization stands. Our choice is supported by the majority of people in the world, including millions in Western countries. Then he goes on to say, true, today birth rates are declining in Russia and many other countries. So this is a, a, a key element of, of, of what he wants to talk about, which is essentially not just the traditional family, and, uh, you know, one could easily be snarky and point out that uh, Putin hardly stands as a great exemplar of traditional family values, but let's move on. But instead, the issue of demographics. And here, it's a mix of populism and pragmatism. Populism in the sense of it's a way of justifying handing out all kinds of perks and bonuses to particular constituencies, especially families. But also pragmatism in that absolutely the, the demographic factor is not the kind of destructive crisis just over the horizon that some people suggest for Russia, but, but nonetheless, you know, a, a very, very genuine issue that does need to be addressed if, if one wants to think about Russia as actually having some kind of long term future. So, you know, he, it, it allows him to talk about things like, like the poverty rate. I mean, he mentions that the poverty rate among families with many children is about 30% at the moment. And by 2030, and bear that date in mind, he wants that to come down to 12%. He also talks about wanting additional assistance to regions where the birth rate is below the national average. Now, interestingly enough, those regions tend to be in central and northwestern Russia. And those regions tend also to be disproportionately ethnic Russians, because you know one of the one of the demographic problems facing the Kremlin is precisely that the share of ethnic Russians compared with other ethnicities, particularly from the North Caucasus, is declining. So what you have is in 1979, ethnic Russians made up 82.6% of the population of what was then the RSFSR within the Soviet Union. So 82.6%. By 2002, that had declined to 79.8, and by 2021, 71.8. So, you know, not, uh, you know, dropping off a cliff, but nonetheless, you know, a distinct diminution. And that has particular importance at a time of war. Because what this actually tends to mean is exactly that you have, you know, a relatively large number of older ethnic Russians. But if one looks at young people, and young men in particular, or to put it another way, conscription age young men, they are disproportionately drawn from non-Russian ethnicities. And so there is this discomfort at the point of beginning to think that, that your army, the final backstop of your power, is actually perhaps made up of, of non-Russians. So this is one of the reasons I would suggest why we see a, a big commitment to trying to support people to have more, fam more, more kids and larger families 
amongst ethnic Russians in particular. He goes on, there's also an, an issue, I mean, obviously, if you're talking about demographics, life expectancy is a factor. He says that you know, life expectancy has gone back to its pre-COVID-19 point of, of 73 years, but he wants it to go up. By 2030, life expectancy in Russia should be at least 78 years. Now, I'm sure it's entirely coincidental, but in 2030, Putin will have his 78th birthday. But we move on. And again, this is this is a point where I really will will just canter through. But because we have, you know, a whole series of commitments, not just to you know family, but also to link with that, obviously, education, teacher training. He wants to see a lot more emphasis on the, the, the Russian economy. He says last year, Russia's economy grew faster than the world economy. And we outperformed not only the leading EU countries, but all G7 economies as well. Well, yeah, but bear in mind that is based on the back of military Keynesianism. In other words, spending on the defence sector. If one looks at the civilian sector, it, it's in decline. And in particular, this is actually at the expense of long-term development. He, he goes on to talk about the importance for research and, and, and development and technological innovation and the like. But at the moment, that is starved. Everything is going into the immediate war effort. So sure, GDP increased last year, no question. But actually, in the process, you are mortgaging the future. He talks about the share of non-commodity industries in the growth structure, now standing at well over 90%. There's a real wordsmith of a phrase. I mean, what he more or less means is that things like oil and gas, the, the commodity sector, do not represent a you know, more than just sort of, well, less than 10% of the of growth. That's not the same as saying that they, that they represent such a small proportion of exports or the economy as a whole. And what he doesn't address is whether or not that is because the non-commodity sector has got that much better and is dynamic and growing, or is it actually that the commodity sector isn't growing at all, which is rather more likely. There's a lot of this kind of sleight of hand of cherry-picking the kind of statistics that, that give the story that he wants. Now, again, he is hardly unique as a national leader in doing that. But nonetheless, it, I, I found it particularly striking. And again, if, if I really wanted to, to torment you all, I would have gone through a lot more of his data in a lot more detail. Because he, he goes on and on, all kinds of other things, the need for infrastructure developments, the need for, as I said, sort of you know, technological development, the fact that you know, agriculture is doing so well and what's happening to the fishing sector, the need to sort of address tourism. And again, it's the interesting thing, you know, tourism on the, is on the increase. Good news? Well, kind of good news. Except that, of course, one of the key reasons why tourism has, is doing so well at the moment is precisely sanctions, the poor um, low level of the ruble on international markets, and how difficult it is to actually fly to a lot of places. So in practice, it's just that it's got a lot more expensive and difficult to go to foreign destinations, and therefore people are more likely to go within Russia. So yes, it is good news. But in some ways, it's good news on the back of a, a pretty fundamental bit of bad news. And then he moves to his kind of wrap up. And it's, it's, again, it's all about how, how things ha have to be wonderful. But there was a particular passage that I did want to sort of bring up, which is 
he talks about the veterans, the veterans of the special military operation as this, this new elite, this wonderful new sort of uh, national resource. You know, people like them will not back down, fail or betray. They should take leading positions in the system of education and upbringing of young people. In public associations, state-run companies and privately held businesses, federal and municipal administration. They should head regions and enterprises as well as major national projects. And then he says, you know that the word elite has lost much of its credibility. Those who have done nothing for society and consider themselves a caste endowed with special rights and privileges. Especially those who took advantage of all kinds of economic processes in the 1990s to line their pockets are definitely not the elite. Compared, of course, to, to all those fine upstanding veterans of the invasion. Well, look, I mean, this is obviously on one level the, the most rank hypocrisy. Yes, Putin and his friends were only able to steal a certain amount in the 1990s and were really able to make out like bandits, a term I use advisedly, in the 2000s and, and onwards. But it is certainly not the case that Putin and his friends do not consider themselves a caste endowed with special rights and privileges. I mean, how many even just simply of, of, of his businessmen's cronies still use flashing blue lights so they don't have to get caught up in, in traffic jams? So massive hypocrisy. OK, maybe not a shock to hear that. What is more interesting is the degree, and this is something that I actually want to address properly in a future podcast, is that there is this sense that Putin or people around Putin are trying to build a new elite and in some ways do a generational leapfrog. So rather than relying on the 50-somethings and the early 60-somethings, who, have, as I've said, are in many ways quite sceptical these days of Putin and Putinism. They're just keeping their heads down, waiting for their time in power but instead actually try and shape a new generation of people who are more willing to, to, be, to be seduced, frankly, by Putin's rhetoric and also by the massive opportunities for personal enrichment. And in this respect, again, this is a parallel that one should use very, very carefully. But in this respect, it is a little bit reminiscent of Stalin and precisely how Stalin sought to create new elites, which, if nothing else, would then cannibalise the previous elites. A regular regeneration of power in which Stalin was the only constant. So I, I think, that, again, that, that was a passage that I think has a lot of meat within it that, that, that needs to be explored in the future. So, you know, he, come, he comes to the end. And I'm sure you're delighted to hear that. And from that, there are basically three broad points that I really want to raise. But why don't I do that on the other side of a break? Just the usual mid-episode reminder that you're listening to the In Moscow Shadows podcast. Its corporate partner and sponsor is Conductor, which provides software for crisis exercises in hybrid warfare, counter-terrorism, civil affairs and the like. But you can also support the podcast yourself by going to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. And remember that patrons get a variety of additional perks depending on their tier, as well as knowing that they're supporting this peerless source on all things Russian. And you can also follow me on Twitter at Mark Galliotti, or on Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. Now, back to the episode. Now, don't worry, this second segment will be rather shorter than the first one. But before I embark on that, just a quick shout-out. I've been speaking at a number of public events of late, 
And it's always very encouraging and, and heartening when people come up to me afterwards and, and come and say that they're listeners of the podcast and say nice things about it. Um, thank you for not coming up and telling me nasty things. Because this is the funny thing about a podcast. You, you throw it out into the void. You have a sense of how many people are listening in aggregate form, but you don't really know who. So I just wanted to say on a very kind of personal, solipsistic level, thank you to all of you who listen and, and double thanks to those of you who say nice things. So what are the what are the three key takeaways that I wanted to raise? Well, the first one, and this is something that, that I, I mention or cover in in my video, is the degree to which 2030 is a constant refrain. I mean, this is a man who's basically laying out that Russia should have a not a five year plan like the old Soviet times, but a six year plan out to then. It cannot be coincidental that 2030 would mark the end of the next presidential term for whoever it is, guess who, whoever it is actually wins this month's elections. And so in many ways, this is his election platform. This is a man who can't admit really that he's standing for election because that would imply that there's some kind of competition and very much the way they're trying to frame this election is that it's one where there is no alternative, there is no question. It is just a civic duty to basically express your loyalty and your support for the current regime. It's one of the reasons why they have stacked the ballot with relative political pygmies and generally you know Putin himself is is not openly campaigning he didn't even mention it he's certainly not going to engage in any kind of debate with the other candidates you know so basically it's a very low-key gray election the Morena says just go and vote because what else is there and look Putin has already laid out all these wonderful things that will happen of course there is a massive problem because so many of these things are things he's already promised things he's already raised he has, in this respect, the, the problem of any incumbent, especially one who has been in power for 24 years, directly and indirectly, is that all the various problems he addresses are problems that arose or were not addressed on his watch, on his multiple watches. So I think that, you know, obviously, yes, it's the campaign speech and therefore it will be full of empty promises. But nonetheless, it's a delicate balance of identifying and admitting to problems, which is absolutely necessary, given there are so many problems that people know about only too well, and to draw yourself apart from it. I mean, certainly at key points, he sort of says, you know, I urge my government to do X, rather than saying we're going to do X, as if there's really a question, as if Mishustin's going to turn around and say, eh, it's a nice idea, Vova, but I don't think we're going to do that. No, of course not. But nonetheless, the role of the government, like the role of all the various functionaries, technocrats and, and general little people in, in Putin's eyes, is to hurl themselves on whatever policy hand grenades happen to be around. So this is a, this is a, a campaign speech, a stump speech, but one that has to thread this difficult uh, line of acknowledging problems without in any way let, letting it become clear that the problems were the ones that he himself has failed to address for so many times. And that links to the, the second issue, which is precisely the scale of the various promises, the various pledges and he, he brings up. He talks, as I said, about support for families, about the need for more and better housing, five new national projects, 
commitment to further research and development and overall scientific and technical development. Massive new infrastructure projects, including reviving and extending the Trans-Siberian and Baikal-Amur Magistral railways that sort of stretch across Siberia. Addressing the issue of utilities, and particularly all those uh, poor buggers who ended up without heat during crucial elements of the winter. Improving healthcare. Improving education with new universities and teacher training campuses. Environmental protection. I mean, there's a lot of stuff here. And as I say, actually, most of these things, absolutely, yes, do need to be addressed. But depending on, I mean, different people have got different figures. But, you know, essentially these pledges would suggest anything from 6 to 10 trillion rubles, which is, what, 66 to 109 billion dollars at the current rate. Now, sure, that's only 0.6 to about 1% of GDP. So it, it's not actually an entirely impossible notion and frankly these are exactly the sorts of things what first of all Putin should have addressed in his first two presidential terms in the 2000s when he had a lot more money at his his disposal yeah but even now it is theoretically affordable but 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 not without costs not without trade-offs I mean it's you know frankly even if you put all of the liquid element of the national welfare fund into it the, it would not be enough to to cover this and he's got a war on, a war which at the moment is consuming 40% of his, his federal budget and which is unlikely to go away anytime soon. I mean, just as the Ministry of Finance's calculations are in some ways implicitly built on a notion that next year they will be able to spend less on defence, more broadly, Putin seems to be thinking that actually the war is going to end very soon and that there will be some rapid economic growth as a result of a peace dividend. Whereas, in fact, putting aside the fact that sanctions are unlikely to be lifted quickly, if anything, actually converting from a sudden militarization of the economy back to the civilian sector could actually turn out to be quite difficult and expensive. So, you know, that's not going to be a sudden source of magic money. So where else can the, can the money come from? Well, Putin hints at tax reform. I mean, at the moment, after all, in terms of income tax, Russia has a flat rate of 13% for everyone. And that proved, to be honest, a very, very successful experiment, given that it allowed a, a simplification of the process that also meant vastly less room for tax evasion, fraud, and some very, very dubious shenanigans by the tax authorities, and particularly the uh, former service called the, the tax police. So we might see a shift to a, a more progressive type of, of income tax. That's got all kind of problems with it. I mean, it's, it, first of all, would likely be unpopular. It will be quite difficult to, to enact because you've got a system that's built around this, this whole flat rate. It would also be regionally unprogressive in that what happens at the moment is income tax largely goes to the region in which it is raised. So actually, you just simply you'll be raising more tax for the richer regions and the real problem is after all in the poorer regions but also it's not just about regions it's also about who it hits the most and the answer is probably the lower middle class budgetniki essentially the sort of workers who are you know employed by the federal or local administrations so everything from teachers to police officers to the people who clear snow off the streets and these are also people who are regarded as one of the key electoral bases of Putin's support. 
So there are all kinds of issues. I mean, I'm personally, I'm all in favour of a more progressive income tax regime. But shifting to it is not quick or easy. Or else, what about corporations? I mean, at the moment, uh, the corporate tax level is at 20%. And there is a suggestion that, in fact, even the, the industry sectors would actually be quite comfortable with the idea of a slightly more uh, higher or progressive tax basis. But even then, there's a trade-off. Putting aside the issue of actually uh, you know, enforcing it, it's, their expectation is, is if they swallow higher tax rates, it will be instead of, rather than as well as, the Kremlin's current policy of every now and then having a kind of one-off ad hoc tax raid in which they suddenly declare that you know, this sector or that will have to pay a sort of particular windfall tax or the like. So again, if you're going to keep business on side, you're going to have to accept that there's a trade-off. Now, at present, I have no idea what he may be thinking, and it may well be that these are just simply campaign promises, which we also know as lies. Comforting lies, encouraging lies, but lies nonetheless. Final element. What really struck me was actually that there was an increasing Soviet dimension to, to this address, um, ranging from the, the, the periodic moments of thundering applause from the normally, frankly, pretty comatose audience, all the way through to the obligatory thanks to the farmers for their, for their hard work, something we saw also in the, the last such address. When I say Soviet, I don't just simply mean that this is a speech delivered in front of a, a bored-looking audience largely of old men in dark suits with a, a smattering of, of older women in, in brighter ones, though I couldn't help notice that Central Bank Chair Nabulina was, was both in, in uh, funereal black and not exactly looking enthused by much of this. No, rather the, the Soviet element, I think, sort of ties in with the degree to which this felt like fantasy politics. That this was just simply the recitation of a grand plan which promises a glorious future that is just over the horizon without really any clear sense that it is, it is plausible or likely or even that, frankly, the person who's reading it has any real interest in it. Back in Soviet times, there was the, the rather bitter phrase, they pretend to pay us, we pretend to work, which actually sums up much of the, the Soviet working experience. I can't help feeling that we're now heading to, they pretend to lead us, we pretend to believe. Or am I being too cynical? Well, I was looking at uh, Komsomolskaya Pravda today. And this is, I'm recording this on Saturday the 2nd of March, so just two days after the speech. And Komsomolskaya Pravda, we have to remember, is one of the more intemperately rabid pro-Putin uh, tabloid newspapers. And how quickly discussion of the, the address has simply devolved into articles about what benefits will you be able to get, that kind of thing. There's nothing really about this sense of a vision. And it's actually, I, I mean, I, I was surprised because I presume, quite frankly, that there would be, that the word would have gone out to, you know, there would have been one of these tjomniks, in other words, these sort of secret briefing papers, giving all the various state-controlled and state-affiliated media one line. And so what we have is, I think, an, an understanding, even amongst the Kremlin's media managers, that actually Russians are perfectly willing to accept another benefit 
or another you know payment for whatever having their their third kid or naming it Mariupol or whatever else so yes they'll they'll, they'll take what they can because these are hard times but belief an actual sense that Putin is offering them hope and a future let's be honest the real hope and a future was actually not so much buried yesterday Friday the 1st when Navalny was was finally interred but in those thousands maybe even tens of thousands of people who actually came out on the day despite all the attempts to intimidate and essentially you know, put obstacles in their way. But nonetheless, they came out and they didn't just simply come out, but they, they chanted that Putin was a killer, end to the war and such like. And even after that, they continue to turn up to place flowers on memorials and such like. That, it seems to be, is where the real enthusiasm is. Not, it has to be said, in the great Gastini Dvor Hall, where Putin gave his address in front of, just as a final point, in front of a stylized map of Russia, which interestingly did not include Crimea or the occupied territories. I think someone didn't get the message there. But anyway, I think I have, for the moment, squeezed what I can out of the, the presidential address. As I said, I, I would flag up that there's a couple of issues that I do intend to come back to, and in particular this question of a new elite, because I think it's a really important one that we haven't yet properly got our hands round. But I think you know, this, these are people we're going to have to deal with in the future. But for now, I thank you for your patience and can just simply rely on the fact that at least I was about ooh, an hour and 25 minutes less prolix than Putin. Thank you. Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. Just as a reminder, beyond this, you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows. Follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. This podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons, and you too can be one. Just go along to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash In Moscow Shadows, and decide which tier you want to join getting access to exclusive materials and other perks. However, whether or not you contribute, thank you very much indeed for listening. Until next time, keep well. <laughs>